Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our teacher, Lee Eric Fesco, is using this series to take a look at some of the parables of Christ. We hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, so uh, I don't know if you all know this about my family, but really it is one of the greatest joys of ours, and that is each week on Saturday, uh, almost without fail, almost without fail, we go to Sam's Club. <laughs> And we, we, we pick up a few essentials. Well, first we fill up the, whatever car we have. Uh, we, we fill it up at the, uh, at the gas pumps that they have there because, I mean, no kidding, 50 cents cheaper there per gallon than, than anywhere else in, in town. And, uh, and then we head into the club. Uh, we, we sort of uh, uh, buy things that maybe are not, uh, it's the club. This is, this is what clubbing looks like when you're in your 40s. This is, this is the scene. And let me tell you, I get every bit as happy at this club as it I ever did in any club when I was 20. This is, this is where it's at. Uh, we, we, what sort of things we buy at Sam's Club? Well, uh, I don't know what they're putting into their strawberries. Not sure I want to know, but they're the size of apples by the time they... And they're tremendous. So we get a bunch of uh, strawberries and other uh, uh, produce. We'll also pick up a salmon for the grill. We, we love... We, almost every week we, we put something on the grill uh, for, uh, um, for, for dinner, and, and uh, it's usually salmon. What else we get at Sam's Club? Uh, I might find a pair of shorts. They usually have a good deal on summer casual. I bought a swimsuit yesterday. The very shirt that I'm wearing right now was purchased <laughs> at Sam's Club. Not too bad, right? Right. A gallon of milk. Always, always need at least one gallon of milk and nuts. They have a great deal on nuts. Pistachio nuts. You, you know, you and I, you love pistachio nuts, don't you? I love pistachio nuts. They have a, the best deal in town at Sam's Club. See, this is so much happiness that you get from one, one place. I don't know how it's possible. Now, there's another, uh, 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 here's a peculiar thing about what we uh, do every week. We, uh, uh, we go get lunch there every Sunday, uh, Saturday. We get lunch. And where else on the planet can you feed a family of four for less than $10? <laughs> nowhere. Nowhere. You have to go to another country if you want to deal that, that, uh, that good. Now, here's, here's the peculiar thing about what we, what we get for lunch. Every time I ask Tracy what she wants for lunch, what would you like me to get you, Tracy? Almost every time she tells me the same thing. What would you like me to get you, Tracy? And she says, I would like a half of a hot dog. <laughs> now, here's the thing about that. They don't serve half hot dogs at Sam's. You either get the massive jumbo hot dog that they sell, or you get no hot dog. You giant hot dog or no hot dog. You can't get a half hot dog there. That's not an option. We call this a mutually exclusive choice. You either get the whole hot dog or you don't get a hot dog. That's, it's just that simple. It's one or the other. There are no choices, other choices in, in that hot dog arena, okay? Now, that's what a mutually exclusive choice is. One or the other option. Uh, what I'm not telling you here is that uh, that's Tracy's way of saying, boy, I wish someone would split a hot dog with me, but the reality is she lives with a bunch of pigs who want a whole hot dog. <laughs> To themselves. The mutually exclusive choice is not a struggle for me and the boys, okay? So we're in a study of the parables this week, and we're looking at a parable that gives us a mutually exclusive view of the world. And what I mean by that is when we break this parable down, when we break this parable down, you're left with two worldviews, and those worldviews are represented by Christianity on one side and quite literally every other religion on the other side. What this parable teaches us is that there are only two possible, this is probably going to come as a shock to some of you, there are only two possible paths to salvation. There's only two possible paths to salvation. It's a mutually exclusive dilemma. You either pursue one way or you pursue the other way. And I'll, we'll get into that in a minute. So first things first, why don't we go ahead and read this parable in its entirety. 
This isn't a long parable, so it won't take us that long. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll read it, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have some discussion around it, and uh, we'll try and ascertain what the lesson that this parable uh, that Jesus is communicating to us uh, is, is all about. This is in the 18th chapter of Luke, 18th chapter of Luke, and it starts in verse 9. So let's read that. Luke 18, 9 and following. Turn your Bibles there, or you can follow along with me right here. This is Luke 18, 9 and following. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing uh, far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, so you have two characters, two characters in this parable. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. I think you know probably by now if you've spent any time around church or hearing the discussion about who Pharisees are, but Pharisees are not painted in the best light. All throughout the New Testament, they are not painted in the best light. You could argue the Pharisees were Jesus' chief adversary, and that's fairly common knowledge. Jesus, was, 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 Jesus and most of the Pharisees didn't get along very well. And you might even say that it was the Pharisees that ultimately hatch the plan to get Jesus killed. So if that's the case, if that's the case, let's try and figure out why Jesus and the Pharisees didn't get along. First, uh, the prayer of the Pharisees, which, uh, with the Pharisees, which says this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Okay, so what's your first impression upon reading this prayer? This is the prayer of the Pharisees. What is your first impression or any impression that you have after reading this prayer? What do you think? Smug. It's what? Smug. He's smug. He's a bit smug. Prideful? Arrogant. Arrogant? He's like the older brother in the prodigal son. He's a lot like the older brother in the prodigal son, feeling a little bit entitled maybe. Someone else? Anything else? Any other observations? He doesn't really know God. He doesn't really know God. You're already going deep on me here. <laughs> wow. He doesn't really know God. Yes. In my translation, ESV, there's a footnote by prayed, and it says, or, or standing, prayed to himself. Very good. He prayed. He's, we're, what we're going to find out in just a second as we keep going through this parable is that who is he really praying to here? Is he really praying to God or is he praying to, which I think Jesus is going to reveal that answer to us in just a second here. What's, what's the most repeated word in this prayer? I. 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 The most repeated word is I. So what do you make of that? Well, obviously a lot of what you said is very self-centered, very uh, not uh, um, outward facing, but very inward facing. I think Jesus gives us a hint as to what his repeated use of this word means in the last sentence of the parable. He says, for everyone who exalts himself, you know, who is this guy praying to? Ultimately, he's praying to himself. He's not really praying to God. His prayer is it's, it's centered around what he does. It's not really a prayer. Have you ever received a backhanded apology? Have you ever received a backhanded apology? You know what I mean, backhanded? Uh, when someone apologizes to you, but it's not really an apology. Here's an example. I'm sorry you misunderstood me. That's, that's not an apology. I'm sorry you were offended. Nope, that's not an apology. I'm sorry your feelings were hurt. Nope, that is not an apology. I once had someone say to me, I'm sorry I upset you with what I said. 
So far, so good. Okay, Uh, that's an apology. But then they followed that with, I thought that was something I could discuss with you, but now I know not to bring it up around you. (laughs) Not an apology. No longer, we're back. All right, that's not an apology. They're putting the offense back on me. That's suggesting the reason I got upset is because I can't handle the topic. Uh, See, the way the Pharisee is praying is sort of like a backhanded apology. Okay, on the face, it tries to make the appearance that one thing is being communicated when in reality, what you're trying to do is passively communicate something else or sometimes aggressively. Okay, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. That statement is full of a self-congratulatory tone, right? Oh, but maybe he's thanking God for for the fact that he's different than everyone else. No, nice try. The whole prayer is full of self-accomplishment. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. These are the things that I do. Here's what I do. These are the things that I do, okay? Here's what's interesting about the things that he's boasting about. He fasts twice a week. That's really impressive. Do you know why? Because according to Mosaic law, you were only required to fast once a year, once a year for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And, uh, and you could fast whenever you wanted, but once a week was what was required by the law. How great is it that this Pharisee fasts twice a week? Man, that's impressive, right? Same thing with the tithe. Well, well, he's only doing what's asked of all of us, right? To give a tenth of of what we get. Well, what you don't know is that what he would have already received in the way of sustenance would have already been tithed uh, by the grower. So the Pharisee is double tithing here, okay? How impressive. He's going above and beyond. It's fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of reverse tithing? Have you ever heard of reverse tithing? Do you know what this is? It's fantastic, okay? Uh, I've heard uh, that C.S. Lewis used to do this. I couldn't verify it, which shouldn't be surprising, right? Because I'd be surprised if C.S. Lewis wrote in any of his book, guess what I do? I reverse tithe. <laughs> so I think it's just been, been, uh, been passed down that this is a practice that maybe his uh, people close to him knew about. But a tithe is giving away a tenth of what you earn, 10% of what you earn, and living off of the 90. Reverse tithe is when you give away 90% of what you earn and living off of the 10%. So, again, it doesn't surprise me not to be able to find it somewhere in print where C.S. Lewis is bragging about what he gives away, but, but it does bring up the question, do you see uh, what the Pharisees would do? What, what's, what's required of me? Fasting once a year? Well, I'm going to fast twice a week, okay? What's the difference between what the Pharisees are doing and what C.S. Lewis did by allegedly tithing 90%? What's the difference here? What, is the, what does the difference boil down to? The heart? What about the heart? I'm looking for the what? The intention. I was, the synonymous word I was going to say was motive. What's the motive? What's the motive? Why, why is the Pharisee doing what he's doing? What do you think, what do you think the, the Pharisee is doing here by giving away uh, more than, than he's required of him or, or, or praying or fasting twice a week? Very public, out in the open. Again, self-congratulatory. Look at me. Look at me. But even let's just say, what if what if it wasn't even public? Selling himself to God. Selling himself to God. What's he trying to do here? It's like this is how good I am. Look, God. It's like he's trying to earn extra credit. Literally, he thinks that there's a way that you can store up extra credit for. Now, as as preposterous as that sounds, that you can save up extra credit and and say, "Hey, God, look at me. Look at me. Now you owe me something here. Now you owe me something." We kind of do that too. We do that a little bit too. If, if I do A, B, and C, then God, you have to, or if something happens to you that maybe is, is out of the norm, but why am I suffering? God, after all that I've done for you, I do A, B, and C, and I do all these things, and why, why would I have to suffer through this? We kind of do the same, the same behavior. So what the, par- what, the, uh, what the Pharisee is doing here, he, he did so as a means of earning merit before God. Okay, the Pharisee actually thought he could acquire a surplus merit by, by padding the actual law of God with lots of man-made rules and rites and, and religious rituals. If God asks this of me, if I do this 
times two, then God owes me. Then God owes me. See, who's in control at that point? Who's in control? Who's, who's playing God at that point? Who's controlling who? If I do this, then he has to do that. Okay? Now, in contrast with what C.S. Lewis did, at least I imagine anyway, uh, or if any of you in here is, is giving away far more than just a tenth of your, your income, you do so, hopefully, not because you think you're earning brownie points with God, but you do so out of the abundance of the heart. You do so because you're so grateful for what you have. You're so grateful for what you've been given. You're so blessed <laughs> that you're giving from a place of gratitude. It's a natural byproduct of, of, of the grace that's been extended to you, not as a result of obligation or as a means to impress God, to earn extra favor. So if we had to boil down the difference to one word, that's the word I was going for. It's going for motive or intention. Uh, I'm thinking of motive. Uh, what's, what's the motive for going above and beyond? In, in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You've heard of these? The implication in, in that metaphor is not that the tree has to struggle to produce fruit. The tree isn't, isn't there trying to push apples out. Apples, come on! You know, the, it's just, the tree is just being a tree and the apples come out naturally. They grow effortlessly. When you, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit then takes up residence within you and the natural byproduct of his taking up a home inside of you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and, and self-control. These are now natural byproducts that should happen just by, by nature of who you are. Uh, those things begin to occur naturally out of a grateful heart, not because you're trying to earn something before God. So do we see that, that difference so far between just natural good works that come out as a result of, of the Spirit within you and what the Pharisees are doing? You see the, the, the difference there? Pharisees, again, trying to earn extra credit, trying to earn favor before God, trying to, trying to control the relationship here, okay? Any questions so far? Okay, good. Let's keep going. Okay, now let's take a look uh, at a minute of the prayer of the tax collector. But before we do that, a word about tax collectors. I made the assumption that most of you uh, knew of the Pharisees, that they weren't painted in the, the best picture in the New Testament. And um, uh, so a word about tax collectors. You may or may not have known that tax collectors weren't highly thought of at the time that uh, Jesus was, was telling this parable. In fact, generally speaking, people looked at the Pharisees as the ones who kind of had it all together you know, who are doing good, uh, that, uh, that they were even the obvious good guys in this, in this parable. And the tax collectors, well, no one liked tax collectors. No one liked them. Uh, it, it's, it's like, uh, have you ever heard, some, I don't think I've ever heard someone in my lifetime say, I love the IRS. I love the IRS. Can, can we get another agency like the IRS, you know, up and running? Wouldn't that be great? I've never heard anyone say that, right? Uh, people don't say that. Why did they hate tax collectors? Yes, because they collected taxes. Most of us pay our taxes willingly, I dare say. Um, maybe not gladly, but willingly, because to a certain extent we realize, okay, we need to pay taxes if we want public services like, like paved roads and policemen and firemen and things like that. Well, well taxes uh, weren't thought of, in the, uh, thought of in the same manner as they were back in Jesus' time. Tax collectors collected money, yes, on behalf of the Roman government, uh, and that would provide certain public services too, but tax collectors were also thieves. They were thieves. As much as they collected for Rome, they, they took a little bit extra for themselves too. And here's the thing, you didn't get an itemized tax bill at the end of the year or, or whenever, however frequently they, uh, they collected. They just, you just got a knock on the door, here's what you owe, pay that or go to jail. That's what your choices were, okay? So yeah, tax collectors were hated. They weren't the good guys at the time Jesus is telling this parable, all right? So having said that, let's look at the tax collector uh, and his, his actions in his prayer. This is, uh, let's, this is uh, look at them one by one and see if we can ascertain the, the theme to all of it. It says this starting in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Why wouldn't he lift up his eyes to heaven? 
He's ashamed. He's ashamed. Do you know what confused me as a child? My mom comes from uh, an Hispanic culture. She was born in Mexico and she immigrated here with the rest of her family to the U.S. when she was five. She's a citizen now, but, but growing up, uh, she retained all the practices taught to her in a home that uh, reflected the, the Mexican culture. My dad, on the other hand, he was born in Pennsylvania and then moved to his fam- with his family uh, in Florida later on when he was still young. So he, he grew up and was raised in American culture. And, and, my, and further, my dad was also a Navy guy, a Vietnam veteran, having served in the Navy. So he had American upbringing reinforced by military background. Now, having said all that, when I was younger, uh, my mom and dad didn't get their cultural nuances straightened out when when they created their child-rearing policies. (laughs) If my dad, if my dad was giving me a lecture and I wasn't looking at him, he would say, look at me when I'm talking to you. Oh, I will look at you when you are talking to me. But do you know what my mom would say when she was lecturing me? Don't you look at me when I'm talking to you. I'm like, what to do? Dad told me that. Why, why did my mom say, don't look at me when I'm, when I'm talking to you? Because in her home, the way that she was brought up, uh, brought up, partially influenced by her culture, if you looked at your parent or authority figure when you were being scolded, that was a sign of disrespect. You didn't eyeball, don't eyeball me. Don't eyeball me was, the, was sort of the, the thing you said. So you just <laughs> look somewhere else. I don't know what to do. But then dad would say, look at me. So, oh, torn. It's supposed to, you're supposed to hang your head in shame when you're in trouble. That was uh, what she was trying to relay to me. Now, why wouldn't the tax collector lift his eyes to heaven? Out of, out of respect, out of a sense of unworthiness. I'm not worthy to even hold my head up in the direction of heaven. Uh, he, he was standing far off. Why was he standing far off? It's a posture that says, I'm not even worthy to be near the Holy of Holies, which was considered the holiest place in the temple where the presence of God dwelled, in contrast with the Pharisee who apparently uh, w- wasn't standing far. He was like, hey, hey, put me near the front. I, I've, I've earned my spot here. I've earned my place. Okay, now let's see what, the ta- what else the tax collector is doing and saying. Continuing in verse 13. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, why, what might beating one's breast imply? Anyone have any idea? Why did they do that? Why did they beat their breast? What is that about? Anguish. Mourning, regret, grief, agony, shame. It's believed they would pound on their chest because the chest is where the heart is. And, and, and the beating of the, uh, of the breast would symbolize his remorse over the evil that had come into his heart. And, and as he beat his breast, he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you, do you know what my kids do all the time? Here's a great recent example. Tracy loves gardening. She loves planting flowers and other things in the yard. She's got kind of a, of a green thumb, I would say. Well, recently she planted some, some snapdragons out in the front of the yard. Do you know what snapdragons are? Snapdragons, they look like this. Those, those are pretty, aren't they? Those are really nice. Those aren't Tracy snapdragons. <laughs> Tracy could make some snapdragons look like that if she wanted to, I'm sure. But she planted some near the front of the house, okay? And I emphasize the front of the house because it only makes the rest of this story that much more ghastly. <laughs> After she planted them, she, they, they thrived initially, but then they suddenly died. Why did that happen? Tracy checked where she knew to check. Did they get too much sunlight, did they? Did they get not enough sunlight? Did they get enough water? Too much water? What happened? Well, come to find out that sometimes the kids get to playing outside and it's too much trouble to come all the way inside when you have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) So sometimes you go where you are, even if you're standing near snapdragons in the front of the house. And this is, as, as, as this is being revealed to me, I asked the one child, why, why, 
why did you think it was okay to do this? And do you know what he said? Well, my brother did it first. <laughs> they both did it. It was a double whammy. Okay, point being, the thing they do all the time when, when I confront one of them over their, their sinful actions, rather than own their own sin, they try and deflect it somewhere else. You know, you think I'm guilty. Here's, here's someone that's more guilty than me. You know, he started it. And so I tell them, don't worry about your brother. This isn't about your brother. This is about you. Give an account for your actions and, and I'll worry about your brother. Okay, I'll take care of him and introduce you to a toilet. <laughs> you know, what do you have to say for yourself? Look at me when I talk to you. The tax collector in this parable, the prayer he states, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, in the original Greek, they use the definite article here, so it would really read, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Do you see what this means? He's concerned with his own guilt and only his own guilt, okay? Not anyone else's. He, he confesses his need for grace. Now, try and look for something like that that resembles anything like that in the prayer of the Pharisee, and you won't find it. There's nothing that references his sin, repentance, remorse, nothing. Why don't you find this in the prayer of the Pharisee? Because why would he ask for something he doesn't think he needs? He, he's doing just fine on his own. He's, he's got extra credit even. He's got a surplus of righteousness, right? You, so far, so good. You see the differences here just in, in their posture and in their prayers and in their attitude and their, their motive. Simply stated, one is approaching in the spirit of humility, humility, which I've always said this. I've said this for, for I can't tell you how long, but the secret sauce to Christianity is humility. It always comes back to humility over and over again, humility. It's, I, humility is never the wrong course of action. I don't care what the situation is. Humility is never the wrong course of action. One is approaching in humility and one is approaching a bit entitled, right? More than a bit. So, so where does all this lead? It leads back to my opening comment about a mutually exclusive option, okay? There are only two possible methods to seek salvation. Do you know what they are? What are the two, two possible methods on seeking salvation? Works. So, in other words, you can rely on your own righteousness. You can try and rely on your own righteousness to, uh, to, to merit God's favor. Or, what's the other option? You rely on somebody else's. You can either rely on your own righteousness to earn God's favor, or you can rely on someone else's to, to, to earn God's favor, to, to obtain God's favor here. Okay? And, and when you get down to it, you can survey every religion in the world every religion in the world, and every religion will boil down to this, okay? you either earning your way into the favor of the deity, or you're relying on grace and mercy to earn the favor of the deity. Only Christianity, this is crazy to me, only Christianity employs the application of grace and mercy to find favor of the deity. Only Christianity. Because look what we're saying here. If you're working and trying to perform like the Pharisee, earning credit, storing up credit, uh, doing everything you can and then some, Relying on, on that work to earn your way into, into God's favor, what's the result? Jesus tells us in the last sentence, end of verse 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who exalts himself, everyone who holds up their own righteousness, everyone who holds up their own deeds, what happens to them? They, they will be humbled. On the other hand, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone says, I, I've got nothing to show here. <laughs> I've got nothing to show. All, all I've got is need. That's the only thing I have is need. The one whose posture reflects this will be exalted. Now, now this is where Jesus is going with all this, okay? When he talks about exalting the one who comes with an empty hand and, and, and need, he's talking about justifying that person, 
In this context, the word uh, exalted is, is, is a synonym for justification or justified. So as we wrap up, let, let's, let's, let's talk just a bit about what justification is. Does anyone have a working definition of justification or justify? Uh, is there someone that can articulate that even outside of the context of theology? What does the word justify mean? Does anyone know what the word justify means? When you say I'm trying to justify, how about the juris, doctor of jurisprudence right here? It's double imputation. Double imputation, which means? Imputing of our sins unto Christ to atone for our sin and iniquity on the cross, and then God even being more gracious by imputing unto us his righteousness such that we are acceptable. It's a wonderful exchange, as Martin Luther called it. We're getting something from him, and we're giving something to him. That's the exchange that's going on here, a bit further here. Uh, justify. This is, this is just from the, the internet here. What's the definition of justify? The action, this is outside of the context of theology, right? This is just what the definition of uh, justify is. The action of showing something to be right. The action of showing something to be right. In the context of theology, all right, it's not much different. It's almost the same thing. The definition you get in the context of theology is the action of declaring someone righteous in the sight of God the action of declaring someone righteous in the sight of God, okay? So if we're talking about righteous in the sight of God, what qualifies as righteous in the sight of God? How, how good do you have to be to be declared righteous in the sight of God? How good do you have to be? Huh? 100% sinless. 100% sinless. Is what? Impossibly good. Impossibly good. Here's, here it is, Matthew 5.48. You, here's, this, this is what the standard is. This is what the requirement is. This is what's required of you, right here. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's the standard to qualify as righteous before God? Perfection. 100%. 100%. Mutually exclusive. It's either 100%, 100% perfect. And listen, and, and just so we understand here, it's not just about not doing bad things. It's also about actively doing the right thing. So even if, even if somehow you manage to make it through life sinless, were you also righteous? Were you also righteous in the sense that you, you, you earned, that, earned God's favor through your righteousness? Sinlessness and, righteous, and perfectly righteous. That's, that's the standard. That's how high, how high the, uh, the bar is. You're either perfect or you're not perfect. So you see, this is what the tax collector realized. He, he, he got to this point where he's like, I blew it a long time ago. I blew it the moment I was born, I feel like. I be, I, how long did I, did I make it before I blew it, before I didn't measure up? He realized he wasn't measuring up to God's standard, and, and, and so his only option at this point is to beg for mercy. That's the place he's at. I, I, since I blew it, my only option here is to beg for mercy. I could, I, that's my only option. And based on that, Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Remember what we said justified meant? Declared righteous. Declared righteous, declared 100% perfect, declared spotless rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He humbled himself and he was justified. Here's what that means in the context of the Christian faith. Perfection is what's required, right? Perfection is what's required. So where does that perfection come from? Chip was just telling us about a second ago. It comes from Jesus on the cross. What's the exchange that, that get, what happens on the cross is we get his sin, he puts, it on our, uh, he puts it on his shoulders. He puts our sin on his shoulders, and in turn, he gives you his righteousness. Remember, he was perfect. He was not only sinless, but righteous. He was sinless and righteous, and that, that's what he puts on you. 
And so as, as, as God looks at you, as God the Father looks at you, that's the righteousness he sees. You are justified. You're 100% justified. And so what that means is, is that you can't earn anything else. It's already been earned for you. You can't add to it. It's already perfectly earned on your behalf. You're right now, right now, right in this moment, you are legally 100% justified. When Christ looks at you, he sees the right, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness, okay? Now, set in contradistinction to sanctification, right? That's justification. Sanctification is a process where, whereby you're still being made holy. You're still being made to be like the character and image of Christ. That's going to take the rest of your life. And he will complete it. He will complete it, as it says in Philippians, that he, he will complete the work that he began in you. That's the ongoing work to make you more and more like Christ. But right now, your legal standing, your legal standing before God the Father Almighty, if you believe in, in Jesus Christ and what he did, your legal standing is justified, declared righteous. And you can't add to that. This, this is what it says in, in, in uh, this is where it all boils down to, Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified. Let's exchange that word for declared righteous, okay? Yet we know that a person is not declared righteous by works uh, of, the, of the law, but through faith, we're believing in what Jesus Christ did. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And this is what the Pharisee didn't seem to understand. He seemed to think that somehow, somehow through his own works, through his own observance of the law, that he would be justified. But Paul is telling us it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You are way far beyond off the mark, way far beyond off the mark. So your only other option, the mutually exclusive choice you have here, is either rely on your own works, which this is telling us here, no one will be justified by your own works, or you rely on someone else's works. And when you rely on someone else's works, that's the only way you can be declared righteous. And the only way you get that is to say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Any other thoughts or questions or comments before we uh, uh, close out on that? Yes, Jim. Um, it seems that there are two options, right? Mm-hmm. It seems, uh, or at least in my life, sometimes I live in the middle of those mm-hmm. two options. Um, what, uh, what, how do you get out of the middle? Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, because I, I, I believe in Jesus' work, but yeah, I still find myself recommending myself to God. You have to, you have to remind yourself over and over and over again. You have to read these promises over and over again. And it's a daily thing. I think it's, it was, was it Martin Luther that said, I have to preach the God. I think it was Martin Luther. I have to preach the gospel every week because my people forget the gospel every week. And the, the same thing is, is true for me. I can't tell you what, uh, what I, I don't know if you had a chance to uh, preach last week, which was uh, remarkable. I loved it. It was such a th- uh, personal thrill for me. But uh, that very thing that I was talking about, identity in Christ, who you are, I have to remind myself of this all the time because it just takes one comment, one person to say one thing to me and I suddenly forget where my identity lies. Same thing with my, my declaration of, of being declared righteous. I'm constantly trying to earn favor. I catch myself doing this by accident all the time. I'm, I'm trying to earn favor with, with God somehow by the, the good things that I do and I'm like, God, why did you? You have to snap to it and realize that the promises that are in that scripture, the promises that are in scriptures are the things that you have to rely on over and over again and remind yourself of over and over again. I think that's the only way that can sort of start reframing your posture so that that becomes the default rather than you running to where the Pharisees went and say, you know what, if I just try a little bit harder, then I'll have God's favor. Nope. We already have that. The legal declaration is on us. And living from that standpoint, I think, and reminding ourselves of that daily you know, is, is when we start reframing our minds a little bit. 
what's, what's, what verse am I thinking of? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you know? Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1, thank you. Yeah, Neil. Just tagging on what Jim saying, it, it's like once you become saved and you're going through this process of being sanctified, you become more and more aware of how sinful you are, mm-hmm. which makes it harder and harder to believe that you could get this for free mm-hmm. because you're you feel like you were further and further and further away. That's right. That's it. I think that's the, that's probably, I think that is the first step. And you know, when you talk about the, you know, the, the t- yeah, go ahead, Howard. That seems like to me a bit of a lie from the enemy mm-hmm. because he said when we when we were slaves to sin, this is we were servants. Mm-hmm. But when we trust him, we become sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. It's a whole Co-air. position. And that's like I said, we need to continue to remember that truth. And then mm-hmm. our works as believers, once we're born again, is not to gain favor, mm-hmm. but as as sons and daughters and delighting who he is. It's the natural byproduct. Spirit, like mm-hmm. you're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, and continuing to to uh, to remember to remember that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Howard. Luke. Just on that too, when he when he says that that one was justified, that you lose a little bit in the English, where like in the Greek it's the it's the past perfect participle. Mm-hmm. It's like having been justified, fully complete. It's done. It's done. It's, it's no more movement. Mm-hmm. And then everything flows out of that. That's why I say your, why I say your legal standing, it's like as if the judge were, were said, you, all of you, not guilty, not guilty. Not only, again, not only not guilty, but righteous. That's, that's the status that's been given to you. And, uh, and again, sanctification does take the rest of the way, you know, but again, it's not done as a res- Sanctification is not occurring as a, as a means to try and, and somehow improve on that justification. Your justification has been earned, flat out, done. Yeah, Sean. So what strikes me with this is like, this doesn't seem like new information. Mm-hmm. You know, I can read through Isaiah right now with the church going through it. And, you know, like the first few chapters are just like, the proud and haughty would be brought down and like proud people. Yeah, the first two thirds of the book, yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. beats you over the head with it. And so a Pharisee would in theory know this, mm-hmm. wouldn't know the scripture. So I'm just saying like how how did they rationalize kind of those prayers with That's a Isaiah, really good question. Like one of the most famous prophets. And if you think about what Isaiah's doing, I you know, when Isaiah was initially told, go preach, you know, he's preaching to people that were blinded. Blinded by their they didn't they they didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand it. They were running after other things. And so what you see with the Pharisees is, is that very thing being played out. It's not that they weren't able to read. Of course they knew how to read. Of course they even understood the words, but they were still blinded. They were still blinded, uh, and now those, those words that are in Isaiah were serving as words of judgment because as, as, as they read those, they're, they're thinking that, yeah, I got it. I got this. I got this all together, and they completely missed it. And so it, it really takes it really takes at that point the Holy Spirit to take the scales off their eyes to be able to realize that I really have nothing. It's like Neil was saying, where you get to the point where you're like, I I'm terrible. I'm terrible at this. And then, which in your need, that's when your eyes are open. I just don't think many of the Pharisees had ever gotten to that point. Some of them did, but I think many of them didn't because they were so consumed with their own ability and their own means of justifying themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just thinking about the comments, and um, we don't get it for free. It wasn't free. So it's not free. Mm-hmm. terribly mm-hmm. and was tortured excruciatingly. Mm-hmm. And, and remember that every good Friday, mm-hmm. and that's why it's good. And then the issue also of um, sometimes within all of that, we're proud because we're thinking, what do I have to do?
it's free, I, 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 and we have to, again, go back to the yeah. word of humility that someone graciously stepped aside and took the blows for your sake. That's right. And then just the other thought, too, that, um, and I can't remember, so... <laughs> well, thanks, Lucy. Uh, well, but, uh, yes, real quick, because then we got to wrap it up. Let's go Esther and then uh, Holly, and then we'll... I just want to give a nerdy analogy. Oh, is it Marvel Comics? No, it's not oh, okay. Marvel. Well. But it's truly nerdy. We'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> so when I was in medical school, we used to say P equals MD. Mm-hmm. And when we were in college, we used to say, you can either study to not get an F, or you can study to get an A. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like too good, because... I studied to not get an F, but God gave me an A. Yeah. And I didn't work for it, and it almost feels too good. Yeah. And I think that is the mystery of His love for us that we can't. It is too good. And it's just such a gift. It's just so. So nerdy, but. But again, it's what sets us apart from literally every other religion in the world. This is the only one that that follows that that path of of getting something that's way too good to be true. Way too good to be true. Yeah. I was just going to end with this verse. End it for us. Okay, Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. Yeah. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not Out your yourself. Own yeah. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Who would like to close for us in prayer? Who would close us? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week!